This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. When you look at the core mission of the FBI, to protect the American people, to uphold the Constitution, whether you're doing that in New York City or Kansas City or Sacramento or Seattle, that mission and that objective is the same. We deal, for most of our careers, with the American public. We talk to the American public. We interact with the American public. We have those conversations based upon years of trust that we have built up here in the United States and even abroad. Is the Bureau focused on, obviously it's focused on international terrorism. Is it as equally focused on the domestic terrorism piece? I feel comfortable with the degree of focus within the FBI, and I feel comfortable with the degree of focus with respect to how the FBI brings together other federal, state, local, and tribal jurisdictions together to share the intelligence and to focus on the domestic terrorism problem. That's not to say that the organization is perfect, and that is why the FBI, along with other federal agencies, continuously reassess the threat and reallocates resources based on the renewed understanding of that threat. Carl Gattis was a career FBI agent, serving the Bureau and our country for 21 years. He finished his distinguished career as the Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's National Security Division, one of the Bureau's top positions. Carl spent most of his career working on counterterrorism issues. Carl and I sat down recently to talk about his career and to chat about an issue that does not get enough attention, domestic terrorism. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. 
Carl, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Carl, as you know, I asked you to come on to the show to chat specifically about domestic terrorism. A number of our listeners have asked us to spend some time on that important issue. So it's great to have you on to talk about that. But before we do that, I'd love to spend a little time chatting with you about your career and a bit of time asking at least a couple of questions about international terrorism, which I actually think will help us transition nicely into domestic terrorism. Does that make sense? That makes sense, Michael. Great. So you were a career FBI agent, I think 21 years, correct? That's correct. So how did you end up, Carl, at the Bureau? And was it something that you always wanted to do from a young age, or is it was, was it an interest that only came, came later to you? Well, it actually wasn't planned at all. Um, I had no designs to uh, come into the FBI growing up. In fact, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I, I grew up, uh, my father was a physician. He's a retired physician now. And growing up, I was very familiar with that environment. And um, when I was in high school and, and then college, uh, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, and then when I was in college, I tried to prepare myself for eventually going to medical school. Uh, but unfortunately, at some point, ran into organic chemistry, which uh, helped me realign my career aspirations. And uh, I realized that uh, I was probably better suited to a different profession and uh, thought seriously about the legal profession at the time. My undergraduate major, I was an English major, so that was uh, just as well suited to preparing me for law school as anything else would be. Um, so I uh, finished uh, my undergraduate work with a, a degree in English and then proceeded to go to law school. And once there, I decided that I wanted to become a prosecutor. I didn't want to work for uh, a large firm or a small firm. I wanted to try cases. And did, I you, was, go, did you go to law school with that interest in being a prosecutor or did that develop while you were in law school? That's where I was leaning. Um, I was very interested in uh, trial work, and I wanted to put my legal skills to use in a trial setting. And uh, throughout the course of my career in law school, um, I decided that the best way to do that, the best way to find a profession that interested me, that I was passionate in, uh, would be to become a prosecutor in, in an area that would give me the opportunity to try a lot of cases. And that's exactly what I did. I became a state prosecutor in South Florida in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I tried a, a significant number of cases during the course of my four-year career there, everything from drugs to um, financial crimes to juvenile crimes, uh, what have you, and got a lot of experience in the courtroom honing my trial skills. At some point, um, I decided that I had always had the FBI in the back of my mind, but not to a very serious extent. And at some point, um, I decided that uh, I would try to apply for the FBI for a position as a special agent in the FBI and see how that would work. I, I enjoyed my work as a prosecutor, but I thought that I owed it to myself to give that a shot and see how it would go. So I applied uh, to the FBI and uh, about a year or so after I applied, I was fortunate enough to be accepted and started at the FBI Academy. 
Wow. Wow. So, Carl, how would you characterize what it was like to work at the Bureau? You know, for our listeners that don't have any experience with that, what is, what is it like to work there? Sure. It's a very mission-oriented organization. Everything that the FBI does is very focused, and there is a, a strong culture of teamwork and collaboration. Uh, in fact, the, the mission of the FBI is, is, a, is very simple. It's to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. And that's a concept that is um, constantly discussed and is sort of at the center of everything that FBI agents do and everything that the professional staff in the FBI does. Uh, it's a very simple mission. It's, a, it's what brings the entire workforce together. Uh, it's a workforce of about 37,000 people, 13,000 approximately are uh, special agents, and all of them are focused on that very critical mission. And there's a very strong sense of camaraderie that I mm. experienced throughout my career. Um, everyone was always galvanized about around the, the particular uh, case or investigation that, that they were working on, and, and that brought everyone together. And um, it, was, it wasn't just FBI agents and FBI professional staff that worked on these investigations. It was also state and local mm. um, officers that were brought in on task forces. Mm -hmm. So there was a strong sense that the entire law enforcement community was focused on whatever investigation uh, you might be working on. And the FBI does a wide variety of work. Most, most people think of the FBI as a law enforcement organization that investigates bank robberies and kidnappings and, and so forth. Um, one thing I didn't know coming into the FBI is that the FBI had a very substantial overseas mission mm -hmm. and did a significant amount of work overseas. Um, and we have 56 field offices in the United States and a, about 90 offices overseas. So the Bureau has grown into a global law enforcement and intelligence organization, in particular during the, the two decades that I was there. So it was a, f a fascinating time to see the organization grow. Uh, it was a fascinating time to see the skill sets that the FBI was attracting, uh, everything from um, engineers to lawyers to former law enforcement to former military to folks that were proficient in the cyber world. Um, so a variety of different skill sets, uh, people with very diverse backgrounds uh, who came in and, as I said, focused on one central mission. Uh, so it was great to see a diverse group of people come together with a single purpose. And I saw that consistently throughout my career, working cases here in the United States and also working cases overseas. So, Carl, I would assume that you would recommend the Bureau as a place for young men and women who want to serve their country? Without reservation. I think it is a, a place where a person can put their skills to use with a sense of purpose. And we constantly talk about how fortunate we were to be able to do the work that we did to serve the organization, to serve the country, to serve the American people, and to use our varied skills and experiences to that end. And it is 
an organization that very much takes its core values seriously. We believe very much in integrity and compassion, uh, fairness, respect, obviously adherence to the, to the Constitution. And it is a situation where people become intertwined in, in the fabric of that organization. And so there is a strong esprit de corps, there is a strong allegiance, not just to the organization, but to the country. So it provides people who are thinking young professionals who are trying to decide what to do with um, the degrees they have or how to serve if they want to serve. Uh, the Bureau provides a, a tremendous opportunity to do that. And um, often, just as importantly, it is very enjoyable work. It is a lot of fun. Um, it is a lot of fun to do the different types of things that an organization like the FBI puts you in a position to do. So, Carl, just two more questions about about the Bureau before we jump into substance here. Your recommendation for young men and women to think about the Bureau as a place to work without hesitation, that's even true in this political environment in which we live? Still no hesitation? No hesitation whatsoever. I, I think... When you look at the core mission of the FBI, to protect the American people, to uphold the Constitution, whether you're doing that in New York City or Kansas City or Sacramento or Seattle, that mission and that objective is the same. As FBI agents, as professional staff in the FBI, we deal for most of our careers with the American public. We talk to the American public, we interact with the American public. and we do so, and we have those conversations based upon years of trust that we have built up here in the United States and even abroad. And that reputation uh, is what gives American people the motivation to talk with us, mm -hmm. to cooperate in our investigations, and to help us protect them. Um, it, it is a very strong relationship that we have always had with the public. And when you go out to some of these cities all across the country, you see the respect that they have for the FBI. And you see their willingness to help the FBI in its mission. Uh, I, I saw that throughout my career. I saw that during the last few years of my career. And at its core, what the FBI is has not changed, and its values have not changed. Uh, its inter the importance of its interaction with the public has not changed, and its reputation uh, among the American people is strong. So just one more question about the career piece of this. What makes an applicant to the Bureau to be a special agent, what makes somebody stand out? Is it a particular degree? It is a particular quality of character? What makes an applicant stand out? Michael, it's all of those things. Um, the Bureau is looking for individuals who have experience in the workforce, uh, oftentimes who have advanced degrees, whether they be degrees in accounting or engineering or law. Um, but most importantly, the Bureau is looking for individuals who are committed to a sense of mission, committed to service, who have demonstrated integrity throughout their career, throughout their education, who demonstrate an ability to respect others and to who have a, an interpersonal ability 
and they are able to relate to and talk to different types of people, not just in the United States, but all across the world. And so it is a situation where the Bureau is looking for folks with a wide variety of talents, but above all, individuals with integrity, with compassion, and with respect to the, to the rule of law. Um, so it is, it's more than just the degrees, it is those intangibles. And that's why we interview our prospective candidates. They uh, undergo a panel interview in addition to a review of their background. And typically you have to have a certain amount of experience in the workforce or an advanced degree. Um, so it, it is a number of things that the Bureau is looking for uh, in terms of identifying suitable candidates to be special agents. Okay, so Carl, you spent most of your career focused on international terrorism. I want to ask you a, a couple of questions about that. What's the definition of international terrorism and what are some of the things that fall under the rubric of international terrorist-related crimes that the Bureau investigates? Well, Michael, if, if I can pull the camera back a little bit and talk a little bit about what gave rise to the international terrorism statute. Um, first and foremost, if you recall back in the late 70s and early 80s, Americans overseas were, were uh, victims of terrorist incidents. They were targeted overseas in plane hijackings and uh, murders and kidnappings, etc. I'm sure folks will recall in 1979 the takeover of the American embassy in Iran. Uh, in 1983, the Marine barracks bombing in Beirut. We lost 241 servicemen there. Um, in 1984, William Buckley, a CIA um, chief of station, was kidnapped and killed. 1985, TWA 847 was hijacked and a Navy diver was killed, Robert Steedham. Right. So those incidents gave rise to legislation. Um, Congress decided they needed to figure out a way to protect Americans overseas. So Congress passed legislation that criminalized that type of conduct, even though it occurred overseas. And the FBI's overseas authority to investigate those acts derived from that legislation. And that legislation became part of our law, our criminal code. Mm -hmm. And so to your question of what the definition is, um, you, when, I, when I walk through the definition, you'll see that it applies to those terrorist incidents that I just talked about. And the definition talks about violent acts that are a violation of either federal or state criminal statutes here in the United States. And those acts have to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, or to affect the conduct of a government by assassination and, or kidnapping. And all of those incidents would have to happen outside the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. So when you look at the acts uh, of terrorism that I, those examples that I just ran through, they all fit squarely within right. that particular definition. So I'm going to ask you, Carl, about the balance in the Bureau between investigating terrorist-related crimes that have already been committed and collecting intelligence to prevent those crimes in the first place. And I guess I would ask you, am I thinking about that balance in the right way? 
And if I am, how do you think about the Bureau getting that balance right? Yeah, I think that's a, a critical question, Michael, and it is a question that the FBI had to answer in the months and years after 9-11 in particular. And the answer to that question essentially changed the fabric, not just of the FBI, but of how the entire U.S. intelligence community operated. And, and that balance, that balance between reacting to crimes that occurred and preventing crimes is something that we did not give due attention to prior to 9-11. The FBI was very much a reactive organization. So any time a crime occurred, whether it was here in the United States or overseas, the FBI reacted along with the rest of the intelligence community. We identified who the perpetrators were and we brought them to justice. After 9-11, the entire intelligence community, the entire U.S. government learned that collectively, we all needed to be more proactive to prevent those types of acts from occurring in the first place. And in doing so, we had to be better at collecting intelligence and in particular sharing that intelligence, not just within the members of the intelligence community, but with other services across the globe. Right. So we realized that this was a global problem, not just a U.S. problem. And so a variety of steps were taken, as you know, uh, after 9-11 to ensure that we had that balance, the ability to react and investigate to acts that had already occurred, but more importantly, to identify, collect, share, analyze, and use intelligence more effectively to prevent those acts from occurring. And so that caused a fundamental cultural restructuring of the FBI, as well as a change in how we thought as an intelligence community about how we worked together and how we shared intelligence. Right. And so we emphasized even more the need to not just collect that intelligence, but create task forces so that we could share the intelligence that we collected with our federal, state, and local partners. So the FBI now has in excess of 100 joint terrorism task forces across the country. We also took part in the entire intelligence community's efforts to collect, to share, and analyze the intelligence. Uh, one noteworthy um, step was the creation of NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center, right. which is essentially, you, you can view that as the analytical component of the U.S. government where that intelligence comes in that is collected by the various agencies, it is synthesized, it is analyzed, and then it is disseminated in a variety of finished products to the intelligence community so that the intelligence community agencies can make more informed decisions about what they are and should be doing. And it also helps to inform their strategies surrounding uh, terrorism. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Carl Gattis. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe, now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best 
to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So Carl, we could talk about international terrorism all day long, and there were additional questions I wanted to ask you, but if I asked you those, we would never get to domestic terrorism. So let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. So on domestic terrorism, what's the definition of domestic terrorism, and how does it differ from international terrorism? Well, interestingly, Michael, we, we actually have a definition of domestic terrorism on the books, and it is very similar in terms of the language to international terrorism. It, it calls for violent acts that are dangerous to human life, that violate federal or state laws, that are intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, or affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping. Almost identical mm -hmm. to the definition of international terrorism. One key difference being that the definition of domestic terrorism calls for those violent acts to occur within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States, as opposed to the international terrorism definition, which calls for those acts to occur outside the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. So a, a, make sure you understand this. So a terrorist act committed in the United States, if inspired by or directed by a foreign terrorist organization, is still considered domestic terrorism? So this is an interesting part of the discussion. The way various agencies define domestic terrorism is not consistent across the board. The way the FBI looks at this, if an individual commits an act of terrorism in the United States and that individual is inspired by, motivated by, or directed by a foreign terrorist organization, then that act is considered an act of international terrorism, not an act of domestic terrorism. If that particular individual is acting under a um, one of four different characterized ideologies. That is, if that person is motivated by racially or ethnically motivated ideologies, if that person is motivated by anti-government ideologies, if that person is acting motivated by an animal rights or environmental violent extremist ideology, or an abortion-related violent extremist ideology, then that person is considered to be a domestic terrorist. So the definition is different. Got it. So is that piece of domestic terrorism, is that growing? You know, there's been some statements by senior government officials, including the FBI director, Chris Wray, and the former acting Homeland Security Secretary that would suggest that that kind of domestic terrorism that you just talked about is a growing problem. Is that your sense? And, and if so, why? So you're right, Michael, in, in saying that both um, DHS and the FBI have indicated they've seen a rise uh, in recent years in those types of acts. The problem in coming to a conclusion to answer that question appropriately is the fact that we don't have a great deal of fidelity with respect to the statistics because 
various agencies and components in the United States who collect this type of data characterize the conduct differently. And so the numbers essentially are different. Mm. And what I mean by that is this, is that the FBI, when they are talking about domestic terrorism, do not include in their numbers acts of terrorism committed by individuals who are inspired by foreign terrorist organizations, even though those acts are committed here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Other components, agencies, uh, not-for-profits, who also uh, look at these statistics, might include individuals who commit acts of terrorism here in the United States, even though they're directed by a foreign terrorist organization, in their overall numbers. So that's what makes it difficult to answer that question with a great deal of reliability. And this is one of the reasons that some have called for a domestic terrorism statute so that these acts could be more accurately characterized and so these statistics could be more accurately kept and analyzed. So Carl, where are you on this question of a domestic terrorism statute? Well, I think it's worth understanding why certain people are proponents of this statute and why others feel that we have enough on the books, enough in terms of criminal statutes on the books already, so that we don't need uh, another domestic terrorism statute. Those, those, who thinks we, those who think we do not need it look at the federal and state criminal statutes that we already have, and they say those statutes can already be applied to the conduct of those individuals who are committing acts of terrorism within the United States. For instance, all 50 states have murder statutes on the books. Mm -hmm. Those statutes, um, the penalties call for either life imprisonment or in some instances, the, the death penalty. We also have hate crime statutes that are on the books. Again, those uh, statutes uh, call for penalties up to life imprisonment and potentially the death penalty. And we see examples in the past where acts of terrorism were committed by individuals here in the United States those individuals were charged and either pled or convicted at trial, and they are either serving life sentences, they are serving other terms in prison, or uh, they were eligible for the death penalty. So the, those who don't see the need for a domestic terrorism statute take the position that we have laws on the books, they are effective, and there are historical examples that we can point to that tell us that we are effectively managing the problem. Now, on the other hand, there are those who think that we do need a domestic terrorism statute for, for a number of reasons. Those proponents of the statute say that we need to characterize the conduct of individuals who commit acts of terrorism in a consistent fashion, whether it be here in the United States or abroad. In essence, there has to be a statutory equivalency. If we have an international terrorism statute that criminalizes the conduct overseas and that provides for certain penalties, we should certainly have that here in the United States to protect our citizens, to criminalize that conduct, and to impose the appropriate penalties. They also argue for the need to have a moral equivalency. In essence, we need to be able to characterize the conduct of those who commit violent crimes and furtherance of terrorist, terrorist ideologies 
the way it's supposed to be ter- characterized. They are terrorists. They commit acts of terror. We should call them that. The proponents of the statute also believe that if we had a statute, as I alluded to briefly before, that we would essentially be able to characterize that conduct more accurately and track it, and we would have statistics that we would be able to point to to understand the trends and to be able to allocate resources, the appropriate resources, to these investigations based on our understanding of the threat. So, Carl, I guess, you know, the debate is is important, and we'll see how that evolves. But at the end of the day, is the Bureau focused on, obviously it's focused on international terrorism as as folks understand it. Is it as equally focused on the domestic terrorism piece as the public understands it? It's helpful to understand how the FBI positions itself to address problems like domestic terrorism, to address threats like domestic terrorism. And, you know, in my experience um, at a variety of levels as a street agent and then in, in a variety of leadership roles, what I saw was an organization that had terrorism squads. These are groups of individuals, agents, professional staff, analysts, who are sitting together and focused on a particular threat. So these are squads of FBI personnel who are focused on terrorism. Every field office in the country, all 56, have a counterterrorism squad. There are over 100 joint terrorism task forces throughout the country. And their focus is not just on international terrorism, but it's on domestic terrorism as well. At FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., there is a, an entire what we call the section of agents and analysts who are focused on the domestic terrorism threat. And part of that section uh, was an analytical component that looked at the intelligence that was being collected, analyzed it, and wrote finished intelligence products to better inform the commanders in the field, to better inform the decision makers at FBI headquarters. The other point that's worth making here is that... So you feel okay about that? I mean, because I think there's folks in the public, and this is, I, I think this is an important point, I think there's folks in the public who are somehow concerned that the Bureau is not focused on it. So you're, you feel comfortable with the degree of focus? I do. I feel comfortable with the degree of focus within the FBI, and I feel comfortable with the degree of focus with respect to how the FBI brings together other federal, state, local, and tribal jurisdictions together to share the intelligence and to focus on the domestic terrorism problem. It's also, it's an agile organization in the sense that when there are upticks in the threat, when there are changes in the threat, when there are evolutions in the threat, the organization is able to shift resources and adapt to those. That's not to say that the organization is perfect. That is not to say that it is always perfectly aligned. That's not to say that the resources are always 100% where they need to be. And that is why the FBI, along with other federal agencies, continuously reassess the threat continuously reassess the posture of the threat, the trends, the actors, the operatives, how those individuals are are working, and reallocates resources based on the renewed understanding of that threat. So it's a continuous process. 
So, Carl, are are there links between domestic terrorists in the U.S., whether they be terrorists who are committing violence based on their ethnic or racial views or environmental views or anti-government views? Are, are there folks in the U.S. who are doing that who have ties overseas? Is that an issue? The issue is evolving in the domestic terrorism theater just as it did in the international terrorism theater. And in the sense that social media, the internet, have changed the dynamic of the threats that we face. And so now it is far easier for an individual who prescribes to a violent ideology to spread that ideology across boundaries. National boundaries are essentially insignificant now given the ubiquitous nature of social media. So if a particular individual who favors a violent extremist ideology wants to spread propaganda, wants to recruit individuals to that ideology, wants to suggest targets, wants to garner greater support for their cause, they can do that through the use of social media. So the fact that the globe is so tied together mm -hmm. online makes it that much easier for groups here in the United States, not all groups, some groups here in the United States to communicate with others in Europe and vice versa. Uh, we see instances, for example, where uh, terrorist acts are committed overseas and those terrorist acts are live streamed online. And so those who are part of similar groups here in the United States can see that and could potentially be inspired by those acts and motivated to act here in the United States. So those are the concerns that the law enforcement and intelligence community has that will continue to be at the forefront of their mind as they collectively try to strategize to mitigate this threat in the future. So both from a, maybe this is the last last question, Carl, from, a, from both the international terrorism perspective and a domestic terrorism perspective. You've, you, you did this for, for most of your career, for you know, a, a couple of decades. How do you see this evolving? Are these problems going to get worse before they get better? Are we going to go through cycles? Are we facing generational problems here? Um, are our kids and grandkids going to be struggling with this issue? What does victory look like? How do you how do you think about where we might be heading and and what the factors will be that will make things better or make things worse? I know that's a tough question. Those are a lot of difficult questions to answer, and and I'm sure the heads of all of the agencies who are involved uh, in the the fight against terrorism would love to have a solid answer to those. But I I think one way to think about it is this that. The terrorist threat has evolved significantly in the last several decades. It has evolved from a situation where we were worried about complex plots hatched overseas targeting the United States, those plots being hatched by tightly knit organizations with a hierarchical structure. And now we're looking at threats, whether on the international terrorism side or the domestic terrorism side, threats that are being um, pushed forward by lone actors, mm -hmm. lone actors who are radicalized and motivated online, lone actors who select their targets 
through social media, lone actors who spread their propaganda in social media. Social media and the online world are, are going to be an issue that collectively the law enforcement intelligence community is going to have to deal with moving into the future. It is going to be a tool that will be used by these potential actors and operatives uh, to do exactly what I said, recruit, spread propaganda, um, spread ideologies, extremist ideologies. So one particularly difficult problem set that the community is going to have to deal with is how to address that online issue while at the same time protecting and safeguarding the, the constitutional rights of Americans in the United States. The First Amendment plays a tremendous role in what is going on in social media. And that is a problem that is very unique to our country. Right. And it is something that we need to be very sensitive to. And we need to make sure that the actions that we, that those in the law enforcement community take are lawful um, and are reviewed by neutral third party judges um, and are consistent with not just our values, but with the constitution and those constitutional requirements. And so we need to continue to evolve just as the threat has evolved. We need to be able to forecast that evolution on the part of those terrorist organizations. We need to continue the public discourse around issues like encryption and privacy. And we need to make sure that we as a society are comfortable with how we are allowing the law enforcement community to use its authorities under the Constitution. Um, we don't have um, absolute privacy in the United States. There are lawful ways for the law enforcement community to obtain information in furtherance of its investigation. And that is critical to their efforts to protect the American people. But this discourse has to continue and we need to continue to collect intelligence and understand this threat so that the tools and the methodologies that are being used evolve ahead of that threat. Carl, thank you so much for your time. And most important, thank you for your service of two decades to the FBI and to the country. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Michael. It was my pleasure. You're welcome. That was Carl Gattis. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.